morning, church. My name is Brett. I'm pastor of this people. It's good to see all of you, but especially our guests. Welcome. Glad to have you in the house. Well, we've completed a series on the Beatitudes, and we're going to continue in Matthew chapter 5 today, where Jesus progresses in his message and doesn't just say what's going to happen to us if we do the proper thing. He talks about who we are. So turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. We're going to look at verses 13 through 16. Matthew 5, 13 through 16. Jesus is speaking in verse 13. He says, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. Verse 14. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Verse 16. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Lord, help us as we study. Again, Jesus is concentrating on identity. And so the title of this sermon today is Who You Are. Who You Are. The first part of the Sermon on the Mount message dealt with what's going to happen if you do the right thing. And you will be blessed. And God wants us happy. He wants us happy. He wants us happy the right way. He doesn't want us happy the way we'd like to be happy, which is doing what we want to do. Generally speaking, that's the way we find, we think happiness is doing what we want to do. But when we do the right thing, Jesus says, the kind of happiness that will come to you will not be fleeting. It won't sprout wings and fly away. It'll be a joy that sets down in the soul deeply and brings fulfillment, not just immediate gratification. But he goes on from some challenging concepts. I mean, when he, the last thing he talked about with respect to, to being blessed was figuring out how to love your, your persecutors and your enemies. So that was challenging. And then he begins to talk about identity. And he uses two metaphors, salt and light. And although they over, overlap in their influence, they have some very distinct qualities that allow us to understand who God has created us to be. Now, I want you to, to think during this sermon, not just what you are called to do, but who you are called to be. Don't ever get to the point in this sermon, in this 30 minutes, where you're, you're, you're thinking, okay, I must do something different. I don't want you to go there yet. I want you to think about how I must be someone different. Because if you are somebody different, you will do something different. It's just going to happen naturally. It just flows out of you if you're different, if you are different. But it's possible for you to not be different and you do something different and then people see the difference. And they sit there and they say, what's wrong with this picture? They did this, but they said this. And I, I see them acting like this when I saw them doing this good thing over here I can't I think what is that word 
that the Oxford hypocrisy? God wants integrity. Integrity means wholeness. That there is no difference between who you are, what you do, and what you say. Now, the only one who was able to present that perfectly to the world was Christ. And so there's a little bit of hypocrisy in all of us. Our goal is to reduce whatever amount you've got daily. To reduce it until nobody is able to tell except God Almighty. It's so negligible that it cannot be seen. They've got to pull out a microscope to find it. That's the goal, that we are so whole. And so Jesus doesn't just talk about what you should do. Now, he says, this is who you are. You are the salt of the earth. Let's talk about the qualities of salt. Before they had refrigeration, salt was that which kept things from corrupting meat, specifically. So if you salted the meat, the corrupted forces that just lived in the environment of air were stopped. It didn't mean that they didn't try to invade. It meant that they were stopped in their tracks and were no longer allowed to do what they normally do in the life of that meat. Secondly, salt is that which brings flavor to stuff. It lets the natural flavor pop out differently. And so you put it in your mouth, you think, ooh, that really tastes good. And then thirdly, salt is used as an antiseptic, though it is painful on its application. The pain of the application is much better than the pain of the infection. So you accept the pain of the application. Now today we have many different kinds of antiseptics which don't hurt as much. But if you only got salt, use it. And back then, that's pretty much what they had. Somebody got a wound, you put salt in it, they screamed, at least they were better tomorrow. So those were the three primary uses of salt. And Jesus said, this is who you are. You are the people that stop the corruptive forces in the world. That's who you are. Not just congregationally, but individually. Yes, the church, Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 2, is the pillar and the support of truth. That we are to be the people that take truth and support it wherever we find it trying to be eroded. I'm not talking about that the church should be a political force. I'm talking about that the church should be a spiritual force. That wherever we go, we support that which is most right. And when we see wrong, we call it as such. Now, we can't stop people forcibly from doing the wrong thing whether it be congregationally in our community or individually in your relationships, you can't. But what you are called to do is put up a stop sign. If folk want to run it, that's their business. But you put up a stop sign and say, that adultery needs to stop here. Right now and right here. If they ignore you, that's their business. But at least you have told the corruptive forces, as when you get to me, you can't continue. You can't make any more progress when you come up against me. Somebody knows it needs to stop. That's what, that's what salt does, and it does it naturally. The infective forces that come against meat to try to corrupt it, when they hit the salt, they say, we got to stop. That's what we are. 
The passage over in, in Revelation, where God speaks to the church at Laodicea. And he says to the church, talks about, put salve in your eyes that you may see. He says, I, I wish you were either hot or cold, but because you are neither and you're lukewarm, I will spit you out of my mouth. Now the way I have heard that passage taught, and indeed for years I taught it this way, that hot was good, good, that you were red hot for God, white hot if you will, and cold was bad, that your heart was cold toward God and you really weren't interested in the things of God. And God would rather you be either hot or cold, but in the middle. But there, there are two problems with that interpretation. And whenever you get to a passage that you've heard said, this is what it means, but you keep reading it and you say, that just doesn't, it, it makes a lot of sense because the interpretation of the passage happens to make sense to our lives and that God would rather somebody be real hot or not love them at all so people can tell the difference between the two, but lukewarm, somebody who's in compromise, he doesn't like. Now, I understand that message, and you can pull that from this, but I don't think that was the original meaning when God was speaking to the people of Laodicea for two reasons. I, I don't find many places in Scripture where God says, I would rather you be evil, completely cold. I just have a hard time with God favoring that disposition because he wants people to repent. And so I, I just think, well, that doesn't seem, even though it may be the only place in Scripture where it, where it, it says so, and, and, and there's times when you get one passage that says it one way, one time. But I don't know. And then I looked at the, the surrounding circumstances of the people to, which, to whom God was writing. And the people of Laodicea were part of a triangle city structure. Laodicea was, was boundaried by Heropolis, and Colossae. And Heropolis had hot springs, which actually flowed down to Laodicea. Colossae had cold springs, which flowed down to Laodicea. And with the hot springs, they would make salves for eyes. And Laodicea was famous for healing eye wounds and infections. And people would go there in order to get better. And the hot springs would allow them the privilege of making salve for eyes and of being kind of a medicinal force to the entire body and that people could actually dip in these hot springs and feel better because the mineral content would assist in the process of healing or health. Beautiful. But then the, the springs that came from Colossae were cold, those which they would use in order to drink and make food and that kind of thing. And so I don't know that the people of Laodicea would have heard it like we hear it because they would have thought that hot and cold are both good because they would have seen their springs as being the reference point to God making this point and because we don't live in that environment or in that time period we don't see any of that but this is probably how they would have heard it cold is good hot is good God would rather both of us both these things he's referencing as being good and then I thought I don't know if I was on the beach or at a pool or something when I was getting this revelation. <laughs> but when I approach hot, really hot things and really cold things, I've got to think about how I'm going to approach them. I don't know about you, but it takes me about 20 minutes to get into a pool. <laughs> Anybody with me? I'm just, I'm just, okay, let me just kind of stick my toe, whoo, 
Jesus, help. I feel like I'm going to have a heart attack. I see people just diving in. I say, how do you do that? My entire body just goes, it freezes, it just it gets rigid and whoo! I've got to approach the water differently if I want to get in it. How about a hot tub? Anybody just dive right in? Same thing. You got to, okay, okay. That's not bad, and you kind of ease your way down. <sighs> yeah? So I think God is saying this. I'd rather you be people to whom folks always have to figure out, how am I going to approach them? I can't just go up as comfortably as I'd like and start cussing away. I can't talk about Saturday night at the club with them as much as I'd like to with my boys. So I got to figure out how am I going to approach my weekend when they ask me, how was your weekend? I got to say the right stuff. Is there anything about you that makes people approach you differently because they have to see and hear and know something about your God? They got to figure out how do I posture myself when I come to you? This is what salt does. Are you listening to me? This is what salt does. It stops corruptive forces in people's lives, and they don't even know it. They don't know what's going on. They just think, uh. and, and, you know, I, I hang around a lot of people who don't know God a lot. And once they find out I'm a pastor, everything changes. Everything. Oh, they get all right then. They talking about grandmama who was a preacher and Uncle John who was a preacher and her uncles, missionaries, and, 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 and then they, they stop cussing. And, and I, I, I live in some of the environments that are, that are very visceral. Very visceral. Locker rooms are very visceral. And there used to be music playing in there that wasn't the most enlightening. I'm talking about women in certain ways and language. Now all that's gone when they see Pastor Brett walk in the room. They have to approach things different. And that's a good thing. Now, you, you might say, well, wait a minute, I'm... I might lose their friendship. We can't hang like we used to. No, you make a different kind of friendship. Listen, you can still love people and be right. You figure out how to love them to where even though they have to always posture themselves differently when they're around you, they sit there and think, I can't help but be around them. They love me so much. It's like a magnet. It just draws me to them. They're living right, and I know I'm not, but I know I need to live the way they're living. So the only way I I know how to do it is to get around them enough to figure out how to do it. And though it's cross-grained to everything they know to be true, they can't help but want to be around you. That's the way it was with Christ. Now, the people who were intimidated by him because they were concerned about their power structure and how much Jesus would influence the people that they thought were theirs... Yeah, they, they had a different idea about what they wanted to do with Jesus. But the populace would hear the truth and say, wow, that really hurts, but I love it. That's painful. He's telling me I need to repent, and he's right. And I don't want to do it, but I'm going to hang around more. It's a strange dichotomy that exists in the human soul. That's, it's the residual presence of God that is calling to people on a regular basis to be right even when they aren't. That's what we are called to be, salt. We flavor environments. We make everything taste better. 
If you're not making stuff taste better, if you're not making marriage taste better to people, if you're not making integrity in the workplace taste better to people, because there are no consequences to doing right. There are only blessings. There are only blessings to do. There are no consequences. There are a bunch of consequences when people do wrong. But when they see you, even though the the immediate gain is not there and that you're actually sacrificing something for the long-term benefit, but when they see the long-term benefit and their short-term consequence, they sit there and say, oh, gosh, I should have done it like that. And their immediate gratification just doesn't seem to have near as much staying power. The length and longevity seems to go away. And they're looking at you who has no consequence and all benefit. This is the way we ought to live. Everything about what we do ought to taste better. When people taste you, it ought to taste good. When they bite of the fruit of your life, it ought to be the best bite of fruit they've ever had. And to tell people that they're doing wrong immediately is like salt in a wound. Antiseptic, painful. But people go to folks and pay them to tell them something's wrong. (laughs) You go to the doctor, what's wrong? Tell me what's wrong, doc. I'm not feeling right. Tell me the truth. I don't care what it is. Tell me the truth. And if he doesn't tell you something, that somehow brings satisfaction even though it's difficult to hear, you walk out less than fulfilled. Don't think the people don't want to know truth. They may not like it. But the residual presence of God on the inside of them, the fact that they have been made in His image. I'm not saying that unbelievers somehow have the abiding presence of the Holy Spirit. I'm talking about the fact that they have been made in His image still calls and says, I desire to go back to the form about which God thought about when he thought about me. Now, what happens when the salt loses its saltiness? Hmm. There are a couple of examples in Scripture when people who were right got wrong. Solomon is probably the most famous. What a man. Boy, the first 20 years of his reign were phenomenal. Phenomenal. The wisest man who has ever lived, ever to that point, the wisest. People would come from thousands of miles just to hear what he would say and counsel to folk who had knotty problems, things that could not be untied. And then with one word, whoop, the knot would come undone. They go, oh, my goodness. That is amazing. That, the way he's, oh, my, oh, he did that. Woo. One woman, Queen of Sheba from the south, came up and spent six months brought with her 100 talents of gold. Now, a talent was 100 pounds of anything. So she brought with her 100, 100 pounds of gold. That's a lot of gold. And it's, it's not that Solomon could be an, an ally to her, although he became one. It, it, the, the threat was a thousand miles away. So uh, the kingdom of Solomon probably would not be of much benefit in the Middle East to somebody who was in Africa if, if the African context got into a war. It'd take months for them to get there. 
be difficult. She came because she had heard about his wisdom. And when she got there, she said this, the half has not been told me. I heard and it made me come a thousand miles, which uh, in, in caravan and, and, and camels, it's about three or four months just a journey. I came here because of what I was told. And when I got here, they didn't tell me all the truth. You make the trip worth it. And more so, here, here's $10 billion just to say I like you. <laughs> That's how great this man was. Second half, not so good. Not so good. If you look at the book of Ecclesiastes, you have Solomon's testimony of the second half of his life in chapter 2. He said, I gave myself to any pleasure I desired just to see if God would take away my gift when I sinned women without limit alcohol until I was drunk as a skunk for weeks I had anything I wanted at any time and my gift still remained and he goes on talking in Ecclesiastes and he can't make sense out of the fact that there was an immediate judgment for his disobedience. And, and because he can't make sense out of the fact there was no immediate judgment for his disobedience and he kept his gift, he begins down the trail of, of seeing that not much really matters in the earth if I can't make sense out of that which should have come to me. I don't know what God was doing here. And there are so many things that cause you pause. What are you doing, God? It doesn't seem like this is fair. Don't go down the road of Solomon where he began to say, say this. He said, everything is vanity and nothing makes sense anymore. This world is, is barely worth living in. In chapter 4 he says this. It's better if a man were not born. Now, this is the same guy who wrote Proverbs in the first 20 years of his life. And you look at Proverbs, you go every chapter and verse, you go, that's amazing. That is even better amazing. The way he contrasted and compared those two things, it, indescribably great. I don't know if anybody on the planet could have ever said it better like that. That's amazing the way he got that truth. And you look at Ecclesiastes, you say, I don't know if anybody on the planet could have ever got it more wrong. <laughs> Same guy. Same guy. And you scratch your head and you say, what happened, boy? Well, he did some things he shouldn't do. It says that a king ought not give himself to certain things in Deuteronomy 17. There were rules that a king had to, had to follow. He had to transcribe the entire law, write it all out by hand. He had to make sure he didn't multiply horses to himself. So he didn't trust in the horses more than in God. And horses represented the power of war. He had to make sure he didn't multiply wives to himself. Solomon had 700. I think that fits in the category of multiplication. 700. I am, I value women, specifically woman. One that I love with all my heart and I don't need another. I don't need another. But if perchance God had created man, which he has not, to need another, I couldn't handle another. 
one is enough. I'm still trying to get it right. I'm still trying to get it right. I love her with all my heart, but I can't get it right. <laughs> Quandaries and perplexities and changes in life. It's a challenge for a man. 700, dude, what's wrong with you? Now, I realize there are alliances that kings tried to forge. So you didn't have fights with neighboring countries and you'd marry their daughters because the last thing you wanted to do was fight your grandkids. And so yeah, I get that. And, and there were financial alliances where people would bring in their companies to the country if he married one of their daughters. And all that, I get it. But 700? 700. On top of that, it says he became an idolater. First Kings 11, he, he worshipped at foreign idols. And so the last part of his life was a mess. And yet he wanted to pin something that allowed people to understand the enlightenment that had come to him. And there we have the book of Ecclesiastes. Where the book of Proverbs is entitled, basically you could use a synonym of wisdom for Proverbs. It's just a name of what the book is. With Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes, the word itself, means the preacher. So when you don't have it anymore, you have to tell people you do. Your wisdom doesn't stand all by itself. You've got to print up a huge business card to say who you are. The preacher. And this preacher made no sense. Everything is vanity. Rain falls from the sky goes into the lakes and streams, the streams flow into the sea, the sea gives it back up to the sky. What's the difference? A man works all his life, makes a whole bunch of money, and then he dies, and he leaves it to a young man, his son. He doesn't know what he's going to do with it, and he squanders it. Why in the world did he work so hard? His entire life summary is everything is vanity. And, and why? Because he lost his perspective. Everything he judged was under the sun. I looked under the sun, under the sun, under the sun. Well, there's more than under the sun. There's God's perspective, which is beyond. And that's where the wisdom comes from. My point is this. When a man loses his saltiness, he's not good for much anymore. Not spiritually. He's not good for much. And it's hard to get it back. It's hard to get it back. Solomon tried. He couldn't get it back. All that wisdom that came from Proverbs just did not emerge when he wrote Ecclesiastes. Samson. Hmm. What a man in terms of strength. All the men in, 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 in the audience just say, Whoa. Yeah, that's Samson. <laughs> I mean, you just mm, take a lion with his bare hands and just rip it apart. I mean, when man attacks lion, man becomes lunch. That's the way it goes. <laughs> but he took a lion and without, a, without a, a tool, no weapon, and just tore it apart like it was a turkey on Thanksgiving. It says that he went out and got 150 pairs of foxes and tied their tails together and put a torch in between them and sent them throughout the Philistines' harvest at the time of harvest and burned it all up. Now, he did that for vengeance sake. He wasn't trying to attack the Philistines. He was doing it because he was mad at them. 
but it accomplished God's goals. But what's lost in the, in the, in the interpretation and the application is how do you get the foxes? <laughs> 300? You chase down 300 foxes. Whoa, dude, you are amazing. He killed a thousand warriors in clad armor, in armor, with the jawbone of a donkey. Donkeys don't even have fangs. How do you kill a thousand, a thousand armor clad warriors with molars? Dude, you are amazing. You're amazing. All the men just, we just go, oh, just half of that streak. Just give me a little bit. Just a little. Just a little. I, I can do a lot with just a little. I don't need all that. <laughs> but, but Samson's spiritual life was a wreck. We don't have him ever praying to God like all the judges would pray or should pray. Twice he communicated with God, twice. Once he was mad after he killed those thousand Philistines. He didn't have any, any water. He was thirsty. And literally, he said this. After I killed those, after I wrought this great victory for you, God, you're going to let me die of thirst? Really? That was his prayer. Rather than thank you, Lord, for giving me the strength to make this happen, I worship you because nobody's ever done anything like this. No worship. Just really, you're going to let me die? And then at the end of his life, he says, Lord, grant me strength once more, just one more time, so that I might avenge the Philistines for what they did to me. We're not talking about so I can help your people be free. What they did to me. And Moses, at the end of his life, you talk about a man. Now, I, I tread on some very thin ice here. And I walk lightly because Moses was all that. He's the only man that God ever talked to before Christ came, Christ came face to face. The only one. And I, so I, but at the end of his life, he blew it. He, he was trying to figure out how to meet the people's needs. There was no water. And, and God told him, he said, okay, speak to the rock. Well, this has happened on the front end of their exodus from Egypt. Now they were on the front end of their entrance into the promised land. And 40 years had passed, well, 38 or so. And so it had happened once before that the people had no water. And God told Moses to strike the rock and water came out of a rock and watered the entire nation. We're talking about a river out of a rock. Sheep, cattle, people, babies, every, probably 2 million people and double that in, in livestock. Amazing. Well, at the end, the people grumbled and complained just like they did in the beginning. Moses, you're a terrible leader. Why would you lead us like this? What kind of leader leads an entire people group where there is no water? What kind of leader are you? We're, we're thinking about appointing somebody else. Yes, we are. Moses had had it. They never threw him a pastor's appreciation month. They grumbled and complained. They threatened to overthrow, overthrow him on a regular basis. By the way, thank you so much for your offering. I appreciate that. Thank you. They were mad at him all the time, all the time, and blaming him for their disobedience and their lack of faith. You know, at some point, a pastor just has enough. And he said, you stiff-necked, 
Rebellious people, you've been this way from the beginning. You always going to be this way. Took his staff, hit the rock, and water came out. Water the people. The problem was, God said, oh, Moses. <sighs> come here. Come here, come here. Moses, you didn't treat me as holy before the people. I wasn't mad at them. Not like that. You were angry because they disrespected you. And you made them think that I was mad at them like that. I wasn't mad at them like that. Secondly, and this is implied in the correction that God gave Moses, God said, speak to the rock, not hit the rock. Now we know this, that Paul said that the rock that followed the people of Israel throughout the wilderness in 1 Corinthians 10 was Christ. That rock was Christ. That's the interpretation. So, it's really not a good idea to strike Christ twice. See, Jesus had put him on the cross, excuse me, the Father had put Jesus on the cross once. He died once, and that's the only time he needs to be struck. After that, all you do is ask. He doesn't need to re-die for your provision. Are you listening to me? This was a picture that God was trying to make for all of time because you look at the Old Testament, it's a shadow of what is in the New. Whether it's the ark, whether it's Abram's promise in order to, to have a child, all these things are pictures of what it means to believe God in faith for the real, even though this was a shadow. And Moses missed a moment to make a point. God told him, because of this, you're not going to the promised land. Wait, 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 we can talk about this. We, what do you mean? I'm not, I have been with these people. You see how they treated me 40 years out here. I gave up my good job to go to Egypt to get them. I wasn't trying to, I didn't apply. You just called me. All these excuses. God said, no, you're not going in. Moses kept asking to such a degree that God said, don't ask me again. You know, when you have prayed a wrong prayer and God says, don't talk to me like that again, you prayed a wrong prayer too long. God said, don't talk to me about it again. Moses, he lost a little bit of saltiness in that moment. His ability to reflect the presence and the demeanor of God got, got lost in his anger and resentment. And my point is this, when you lose your saltiness, Jesus says, you're not much good except to be thrown out in the street and trampled underfoot by men. Israel had snow just like we do. And we use chemicals today, but back then they used salt. They knew that salt lowered the freezing temperature of water. And even though the marketplace was a place where, where all of the governors, if you will, the leaders of Israel wanted people to go, they definitely wanted people to go to church. They wanted to make a pathway that was unimpeded to the house, the house of God. And so they would use a lot of salt for everybody's pathway to get to church. And I find that Samson gives me tremendous traction. He helps my foot not slip. As God throws him out in that he wasn't what he should be, but he can be used in a certain way. And that's to make sure I don't slip when I think about what somebody's done to me. And I don't respond in vengeance. And I don't go down to prostitutes. And I don't, I don't not worship and appreciate my calling. And answer the call of God. These things happen. And so I say to myself, hoo, 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 hoo. Samson helps me not slip. Wow. That's good. When I think about 
how, I, how, how, how pastors can respond to congregations that don't respond as well as they should to the pastor's call. When I think about what I've seen out there in the body of Christ with folks who stand up in a pool picking really mad at folks for not giving when they got a building program. When I think about folks that don't respond as well as they should to an offering, to a moment to go out and evangelize to the community. And I have seen angry folk take the pulpit and say something under the anointing of God that didn't represent him well. I say, Lord, don't let me go there. I see what happened to Moses. He gives me traction. So whenever I'm not as happy as I should be with you, I come in check before I come to church. I bring my emotions. I say, you stay in that corner right over there. Right, you stay right over there because I'm going to minister with the grace of God this morning. Yes, I am. Grace of God, grace of God, grace of God. And inspire the people to sacrifice for the great cause of building a facility that will accommodate our entire community. Hallelujah. <laughs> you learn stuff. Moses gives me traction. God will use you one way or the other. Either you can be a witness of his goodness to people or he will use you as a great example of how not to live. One way or the other. One, if you lose your saltiness, you become what everybody says, oops, don't do that. If you keep your saltiness, people say, how can I live like that? You're the light of the world. A city set on a hill that cannot be hidden. Here we have a congregational encouragement. This is not just about individual performance or individual identity. It's also about congregational. A city is a group. And we are to be a people that are more than just a lighthouse. We are to be a place where people can find refuge. A lighthouse keeps people away from the dangerous spots that would cause them to shipwreck. And it's important. But that's not the only function of light to stop people from getting shipwrecked. The function of light is to provide an atmosphere where people can live best in the, in the illumination that the light provides. That's what we are to be, a congregation that has so many points of light that the community comes to us and says, how can we do what you're doing? Give us the truth about what community should look like. Because we know that somehow you are doing it in an extraordinary way with a very diverse group of people. We are to be light to the entire community. But then he says a lamp. And so he talks about individual responsibility. He says a lamp is that which is to be lit and then not hid under a basket or a bushel. The lamp is there to give illumination to everybody who is in the house. So Jesus talks about the goal of being a community of light. But then he talks about individual responsibility and how we need to become that community of light. That every person should be somebody who practices giving illumination to people in the house so that they can do it well out there. When you come in, as much as I want you helped, is it more about you being helped than you helping somebody else? If you're just new in God, you need as much help as you can get. And we are here to help you. But if you've been walking with Jesus for more than a minute, it should not be every Sunday. Pastor, help me. I hope you got a good word today. 
I hope Tiffany and Rob can take it out of the park. I mean, I need them to worship in such a way that it brings me out of my lethargy, out of my depression. Lord, meet me today because I am empty. I need you to fill me. Those are marvelous prayers if you find yourself in that condition. And the Lord will meet you. And we will do everything we possibly can to present God excellently so that there is no hindrance to you connecting with him. We will do that. Having said that, once you get met, your job is to somehow now help somebody else get what they need. You should not constantly and always be the issue. At some point, you need to be the giver rather than the receiver. If you cannot be a point of light to somebody here in the congregation, you definitely won't do it out there. We are called to make sure that our lamp doesn't stand or a bushel, but gives illumination to everybody who's in the house, in the house, in the house. Come ready to give when you come on Sunday morning. When you go to your life group, come ready to give. Give illumination to somebody. And, 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 and if, if you aren't constantly being prepared to illumine somebody's life and help them, it's probably, it's probably broken record bread. It's probably because you are not reading your Bible every day. So you, you need to read your Bible every day. You need to read your Bible every day need to read your Bible every day. need to read your Bible every day. Is there a way that I can emphasize the syllable enough to, to, to bring the point home? Please read your Bible every day. You say, Pastor, I don't get much out of it sometimes. So, so, I don't know much inspiration that a bricklayer gets from laying one brick upon another. Except when he's finished with the house, he's got something to live in. I don't care whether the, the spectacular happens to you on a regular basis when you read the Bible. Where the scripture just pop out of there and you say, whoa, I've never seen it like that before. And God begins to speak to you. That's not the issue. The issue is you are getting information about who he is and what you need to do on a regular basis. And whether it's mundane or not, it is still helpful. Read your Bible every day. And you'd be surprised. You do that, you become more compliant, more amenable to his will rather than, not, rather than yours. And all of a sudden, you naturally, your identity changes and you naturally become light. And then he says, once you understand that you are light, you've you got to make sure that your light shines in such a way that people can see. So there are people who are light, but their light doesn't shine in such a way that people can see. Are the people around you in your work environment, in your neighborhood, are they able to see anything in your life that's different? You might be a wonderful believer, but can they see? Can they see? Is there something about your life that is so evident that they can't but see. Live in such a way. Let your light shine in such a way. Then men will be able to see your good deeds. And as a result of your good deeds, glorify the Father who is in heaven. Amen. Is there something about your life that looks anything like that? Now you say, well, pastor, he was talking to the, 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 the leaders who would be the leaders of the church. Those men, Peter, James, John, the disciples. Verse 1 says he took the disciples. He went up on the hill and took the disciples and began to teach them. Yes. 
But think about this for a minute. What did those disciples know when he was teaching them? And how, how much good governance were they practicing in their life? My point is we like to superimpose maturity on people in order to make our immaturity seem more justified. These guys knew less than you know right now. This was the beginning of Christ's ministry. They didn't have a clue. And he was telling them who they are. You know much more than they at this point in their lives. Therefore, you have more responsibility to fulfill what God has called you to fulfill and be what God has called you to be. Let your light shine in such a way that men can see your good deeds. And as a result of seeing that that could only be done by God, they begin to glorify him. We are called to be salt and light. Be both well. And don't let, don't let the, 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 the smooth currents of the relationship begin to, to sway you to believe that, the, that you don't need to ruffle some things and produce some waves. Because everything is going well. They're friends. And sooner or later, they'll, they'll see my light. It's usually later and much. Being a good friend that doesn't share intentionally doesn't help many people beyond being a good friend. I'm begging you, stir the waters. Do something different. Change the dynamics of the people with whom you relate on a regular basis so that they can see your good works and glorify God who is in heaven. Let's pray.